Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium. I know it seems like a strange combination, but that gives me a unique view of life and death. Death can be scary. I get that. That's why I'm doing this. I want to help people explore life, death, and what it all means. We are born and we die. What we do in the middle is the space between. In 1975, Dr. Raymond Moody coined the term near-death experience in his book, Life After Life. For half a century, Dr. Moody has researched some of the greatest life mysteries. As both a PhD in philosophy and an MD, he has a strong interest in how medical realities intersect with the ineffable, ineffable realm of philosophy. In his multiple roles as author, professor, public speaker, and grief counselor, he has heard thousands of accounts of near-death, shared death, and after-death experiences. It is my humble honor to welcome Dr. Raymond Moody to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And I just got to say, you, I mean, you know, at age 74, you just get a license to say whatever comes to your mind, and you are just delightful. It's so delightful to meet you. It's wonderful to meet you. And truly, like, this is such an honor for me. I don't know what I did to deserve to be able to have this conversation with you, but I'm beyond excited to have it. Um, so for those who don't know you, mm-hmm. um, which seems unreal to me, but I know a lot of people who aren't familiar with your work, how did you come to doing the work of researching near-death experiences? Well, I was not from a religious family, fortunately for me. Um, what has interested me throughout my life has really been the same thing, and that what I am so fascinated out is why certain things don't make sense. And um, I I was a great lover of Lewis Carroll and Dr. Seuss when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. and concurrently astronomy, but both what they had in common was, you know, things that just don't make sense. You get into astronomy, like what size and shape is this thing we're in? Well, you think, well, maybe it ends in a wall, but doesn't there have to be something on the other side of a wall, right? But the other alternative that it goes on and forever and never, that doesn't make any sense either. So I went to the University of Virginia at age 18 with the full intention of going on and getting my PhD in astronomy. But um, I took a philosophy course my first semester and I was hooked. Mm-hmm. And to this day, my favorite writer is Plato. And I just fell in love with Plato when I was 18 years old. And that's where I came across these near-death experiences. And I can honestly tell you that Plato was the very first person I knew about in my life who took this notion of an afterlife seriously. I thought it was just like a joke or a cartoon. But uh, Plato describes this experience of a man who was believed dead on the battlefield, but revived during his funeral and told his friends about leaving his body and going through a passageway into another world. And it was plain that Plato took this very seriously. 
So I asked my professor, Professor Lewis Hammond, about this. And he said, yeah, these early Greek philosophers studied cases of people who had apparently died and been revived. And so I was interested in that from that point of view. But, but it never occurred. Sorry, to, died based on what? Like what constituted their death? Well, that they appeared dead. dead to okay. their, yeah. And that they, um, you know, was somehow revived. And but it never occurred to me that that was anything to do with the modern America. But three years later, I met Dr. George Ritchie, who at that time was a professor of psychiatry at the University of Virginia, who had had such an experience. So and as soon as I heard Dr. Ritchie, I knew that I knew that this was he was sincere. I mean, I always realize these people are telling me the truth as they appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's how I got started on the, this. And uh, subsequently th- to that time, through my PhD in philosophy and then subsequently my MD degree and becoming a psychiatrist, um, I have had the wonderful pleasure of interviewing literally thousands of people from all over the world who had these near-death experiences, and that's how I got interested in it. It certainly wouldn't, wasn't what I imagined doing when I was a kid, but, um, you know, at a certain point, it, it becomes a very fascinating kind of work. And what are the... Can you talk a little bit about how you came to coining the term near-death experience? And also, what are the components that make up a near-death experience? Well, I remember exactly how I came to to do that term. I remember exactly where I was. I was was thinking of what am I going to call these? And when I was a philosophy professor, I used to call them perimortal visionary experiences. But I had a wonderful medical school professor. He was my professor of hematology. His name was Russ Moores, and he was interested in my work on these experiences I was studying. So he said, well, you know, that's two medical, paramortal, visionary experiences. And I didn't want to call them death experiences because, by definition, these people were not dead, right, because they came back. So I was thinking, you know, when we often say that somebody is near death. So I just thought, well, near death experiences, that seemed the logical thing to call them. Um, And so basically I quickly found that there's a common pattern to these things. People say that uh, at this point where they hear the doctor say something like, oh my God, he's dead or we've lost her. A common thing I hear from people is a a familiar thought that I've heard many times is um, people say to me something like, I have never been so alive as when I heard that doctor say I was dead. Because people say that at this point, far from entering into a dreamlike state, they say that your consciousness is heightened. Um, I hear people say it's kind of like waking up from a dream in the morning when you're waking up from a dream and you're trying to hold on to those bizarre images and you feel like you're coming back to reality. And that's what people say. It's like you feel like you're coming back to reality. Only this life that we're in now is the dream. 
right? Then it, you, and people say that they leave their bodies, they can see their own body down below with the doctors and nurses working on it. But um, they become aware often of a passageway of some sort and like a hallway or a tunnel or a tube. And they say they go down this passageway and they come out on the other side into an incredibly brilliant and warm and loving light, like that everything is just light and love. And in that light, they say relatives or friends of theirs who have died seem to be there almost as a greeting committee and sort of helping them through the transition. And um, I guess the most interesting aspect of this to me is, um, is what you call panoramic memory. People say that at a certain point, everything else kind of disappears and they say that time stops. Time stands still, and they see every, in this timeless state, they see every action they've ever done displayed around them in a sort of hologram, and that in that state that you, when you see yourself doing an action, that the locus of your consciousness is displaced into the consciousness of the person that you interacted with so and that's the life review right yeah yeah yeah. and they say if you see yourself doing something mean to somebody then you feel those hurt feelings just directly or if you see yourself doing a kind-hearted action you feel the good feelings and people often say that there's a figure of light there with them a being of complete compassion who sort of helps them through this Review is there aren't any words, but they say that the thought comes something like, What have you done to that you want to show me? or How have you learned to love? Is the way people say, they say Yeah, because they say that whatever you were chasing in this panorama of your life, it becomes obvious that what this is all about is learning to love. And so, at, as people go on with this, at a certain point, they um, some people say they have no idea how they got back. They were just in that light and then, pow, back into their body with no sense of transition. Other people will say they have to, they're told they have to go back. There's something you have to do, you know, go back. Other people say they're given a choice that they can go on in that experience or return to the light. And obviously all the ones I've talked with (laughs) come back, but it's almost invariably the same reason. And it's the usual reason is they have young children left to raise, but it's always on behalf of somebody else. People say that for me, I would rather have stayed in the light, but I chose to come back because of somebody else. And, um, so that's, you know, and we hear these same things from people all over the world. This has been studied now by, as you know, many physicians from all over the world. And we, we find the same kind of pattern of experience. But do you always have a choice when you're in that state? to? Come? No. Okay. Some people say that they're just told they have to go back. 
or, or, you know, they get back and they don't know how any sense of the transition. But some people are saying that they're given a choice. And, uh, yeah. And why do some people, I mean, there's obviously people who die and come back who don't have near-death experience don't remember them. So what is your understanding of why some people remember their NDEs while other people either didn't have them or have no recollection of having them? I have no idea. And I've wondered about that for years. And, um, and also it's very, it's very difficult to get an estimate of what percentage of people do and don't. One thing I've noticed is I've known over the years of a couple of cardiologists who were very jovial, kind of people with the oral personality, right, and that kind of laid-back way. One of them was Dr. Fred Schoonmaker at uh, uh, St. Vincent's, St. Luke's Hospital in Denver. Then in Hamburg, Germany, there was Dr. Becker who was, um, again, an oral personality and a cardiologist. And um, Dr. Becker thought it was about 80%, and um, Fred Schoonmaker thought it was about 60% of their uh, people they had resuscitated. But, you know... Those are pretty high numbers. It is. But in the studies that have been done with questionnaires, it tends to be about 20%. And I don't know why that is, except uh, you wonder if maybe somebody who's very laid back and a jovial person just sitting down said, tell me what happened. You might be more likely to open up to somebody like that than to write something down on a questionnaire. But, Mm -hmm. But as to why some do and some don't, we really don't know. And, um, I just, I just, I have no idea. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with the particular illness that brought the person to the situation. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with whether they were lit, were religious or not. It, and it doesn't, doesn't have to do with like the length, like someone who's in surgery or a car accident versus someone who has cancer or who has a prolonged illness. None of that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't seem to matter. Um, obviously, people who die of cancer, for example, there you know un, there won't be a resuscitation generally, right? Right. So, so like so that's a, Anita Morjani. Yeah, that's isn't that. I mean, that's just that's beyond bizarre. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you must have seen in your practice too. I mean, you read the books and you get some idea before you go out into practice what it's like, but the the picture you get from the books is not really exactly like what you experience in reality. Never. And, <laughs> no. And it would um, make it a lot easier if it was, right? You just apply. It would, it would. What in, in the thousands of near-death experiences or hundreds <laughs> of thousands? I mean, how many have you heard of? What? Just thousands and thousands. Just thousands and thousands. I just every week, you know, the week never goes by that I don't hear a lot of them. What has been the one or two that has sort of stood out most to you in terms of their just kind of mind-blowing nature or 
or are they all so similar that there there really isn't anything that stands? Well, there is a, an overlap, like a similarity. However, the one that's ones that stand out in my mind are per, personally is the very first person I knew who happened. It happened to Dr. George Ritchie. I mentioned who was a professor of psychiatry at UVA. And George was born in Richmond, and um, his experience took place in December of 1943 in Camp Barkley, Texas, when he was a recruit in the Army. First person I knew who had one of these experiences. But George's experience was phenomenal. It's, it's like I've heard the same kinds of things from many people, but I remember because I had some personal love and you know, uh, with George, but he said it's like he got out of his body and that he uh, did this review of his life. And he said he was in the presence of Christ. Some people say a light. Some people say an angel. Some people, but to George, it was Christ. And he said that Christ showed him through three realms of the afterlife. And he said one thing he saw was this place that's just like where you and I are in now, except that he said there was something superimposed over it. And he said it's like you could see regular physical people such as you and me, but in and out among them you could see these other people who didn't quite get it that they were dead. And they were trying to ask some or repeating something like in the, it's the Greek stories of Sisyphus and mm -hmm. Tantalus trying to get. And uh, George said that even it's not like anything bad. He said, it's just like a glitch. And he said, even with them, you can see there are people there trying to wake them up. But then George said that he said, it's like there's this whole realm of existence which just consists of people trying to learn things. And he, he, said, he said, if you try to imagine MIT and Caltech and Harvard and Princeton and Yale and every, all of them just squeezed into one place, he said, you can't even get an idea of what this is like. And he said, it's like the people in that realm are focused on learning. And people meaning souls? Yeah, he said it's just like there are, you, they know it's not like a physical form, but you can, they have a form, but it's not matter. And then another one is they say that, I've heard this from a lot of people too, that there seems to be a civilization made of light. That if people said to me, it's like it's not made of bricks, but it seems made of structures of light. And that um, that end, it's the people in there are all just sort of beings of light. Hmm. Yeah, so this is some pretty amazing stuff. But I mean, you know, you hear it from dozens and dozens and dozens of people. And um, well, I, you know, where I have come on this, I, it's very hard for people who have not had any sort of religious background to begin to come to turn. I think you have to be in. The religion thing has to be instilled in you pretty early, I think. A religion and, or a faith? Because I think there's a difference. Yeah, there probably is. I, but where I've come to this is I've had to give up. I just, um, because it's not that a cantankerousness, but you want to 
I am a skeptic in the philosophical sense, like a Peronian skeptic, which is I, my technique is try to avoid drawing a conclusion. That's what skepticism means. And I still haven't drawn a conclusion because logic is, you, you, logic as we haven't isn't up to the task of giving evidence or proof of an afterlife. I could explain the reason, but that's just neither here for now. But, but I have just in the last five, six, seven years, I, I've had to give up. Well, for example, uh, Jeffrey Olson is a, a graphic artist. You know him. Yeah. And um, I met Jeffrey, I don't know, 10 years ago, something. And he told me about his near-death experience. And then I, I encouraged him to write it up. And so he did. And then he sent me the manuscript. And a few years back, he sent me the manuscript. Then he called me a couple of weeks later and he said, you know, I'm thinking about publishing it. He, he sort of really did have to own up to the medical doctors who saved his life that this was going to be coming out, right? That, you know, because patients generally don't tell their doctors about this. So he told this doctor, Jeffrey O'Driscoll, about the experience he said and Jeffrey O'Driscoll the emergency room doctor owned up to the fact that when Jeffrey was in the Jeffrey was in a horrible car crash in which his wife was killed instantly in which he lost his leg one of his children was killed and yeah it's just horrible but when uh, he talked to Dr. O'Driscoll about it Dr. O'Driscoll said yeah well that night you came into the hospital, I knew you weren't going to die because I talked to your wife in the operating room. And so I gave up. You know? <laughs> and and I, I mean, that's not just one case. I just have so many cases of the doctors empathically participating in the patient's near-death experience. So why do you think that there's still such a resistance to to believing that there is life after life? Well, it's a resistance I feel, by the way, so I can talk about it personally. I, um, <clears throat> in all those years, I was just wondering whether there was an afterlife. I didn't really, I always knew it wasn't the oxygen deprivation to the brain. Which is the reason that people just That's right. experience. That's right. right. Well, the reason I knew that was one of my own medical school professors who I loved dearly, Martha McCraney was her name, told me in my first year of medical school that she had uh, had that same experience when she was resuscitating her mother. And so that when she was resuscitating her mother, when her mother died, she herself, the physician, got out of her body and looked down, saw her own body and her mother's body, saw her mother there beside her in spirit form, saw her mother just recede into this light and being met by relatives and so on. And so it, it's not oxygen deprivation to the brain because why would the bystander who is not ill or injured have the same experience if it's oxygen deprivation to the brain? But I just didn't know what it was. And, but just in the last few years, I give up. I mean, I'm happy to say, 
And more of a challenge than anything else is that if somebody else can come up with some plausible way of putting all this together that doesn't involve an afterlife, um, it's only in the point where I have come to assume this is real that I have had to come to the question of whether I want it to be real or not. And I'm not sure I do. I still can't say for sure that I want there to be an afterlife. You know, I mean, I don't want to think about that one. But what I've come to is that it doesn't have anything to do with whether I want it or not. I mean, it, it apparently is. So how do you, because you've, I've read that you stated that you have no fear of death. And no. part of what, what has propelled me to do this work is that so many people I see are plagued by anxiety or defended against the, the reality that we're all going to die. And why I want to do this, why I'm doing this podcast is to, help people not fear death so much. Yeah. So how have you kind of circled that square and how do you recommend the average person deal with that fear? Well, you know something, I am not afraid of death more than anything else because when I was 18 years old, it was October or November of 1962, I read Plato's Phaedo. And that is, that is the most powerful, that is the best book about life after death that has ever been written from the point of view of, of reason. And in that dialogue, I remember I was 18 years interview Plato, so that's going to make it <laughs> challenging. So I'll let you explain it. Well, he is... Um, uh, what Plato said in that dialogue, and I was 18 years old, and now at 74, I'm puzzled because it so seems so strange to me that an 18-year-old would just pick up on this so immediately, but I did. And what Plato says in that dialogue is, philosophy is a rehearsal for dying. And I became a philosophy major. I got my PhD in philosophy, and then I was a philosophy professor for three years before I went to medical school. And so um, I don't know how to help people when they come to me when they're in their 60s or 70s. But who I can help is the young people. I can say, if you want to deal with death so that when you get into your 70s that you feel okay about it, the only route I know is to become a philosophy major and study philosophy because it really does it to you. I mean, I'm just not afraid of death. However, I will say this, I am terrified of life. I mean, there's many things that I am terrified of. Driving a car, I haven't, I, the few times I drove a car, I was terrified the whole time. I ate cars and just I'm free of, So, you know, I'm not being macho because there's plenty of things I'm scared of. But death is not one of them. Now, pain is a different matter. I don't want any pain in the process. But mm -hmm. No, I am not afraid of death, but I will go on to say that life scares me somewhat. 
So one more question before we wrap up on this topic, and I know we're going to touch on shared death experiences in a different uh, podcast, but what is this University of Heaven that you just launched? Can you tell me about that? Well, you know, as a professor of logic and philosophy of language, I just, to me, rational procedure is a very important thing. And um, people draw a distinction between logic and spirituality. And what that shows is that they are ignorant of the history of philosophy because, in fact, um, the story of logic is one of the most amazing stories of history, and you can't even understand it unless you learn about calling up the spirits of the dead and oracles. I mean, it's an amazing story. So logic is just very important to me. I think it's very important for people to learn how to be critical thinkers. And so I'm sure you've seen this too. In the field that you and I are interested in, there's just so much charlatans and imposters and mm-hmm. people who are just happy to give people the answers. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So Lisa Smart and I um, devised this educational portal on the internet called theuniversityofheaven.com. And please take a look. What we're doing is we're interviewing these really terrific medical doctors uh, who've had near-death experiences, who've studied near-death experiences. And um, we the idea is to have a forum where people can come and be uh learn about these things that the information is, um, is, is thought about. I mean, you know, we, we try to put on very responsible, um, uh, material. We have tried to make our courses very reasonable and, um, but the main idea is just to get this information out to the people in a way that is, um, is reliable. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. This was fascinating. And I know we're going to record a couple more podcasts about some other topics. So um, I just wanted to close out again by thanking you. And I'm looking forward to talking with you again soon. Me too. Thank you so much. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? make sure you head on over to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. And while you're there, I would love for you to rate and review it. Snap a picture of your review and send it over to me on Instagram. You can follow me at Dr. Amy Robbins on both Instagram and Twitter. You can also subscribe to my newsletter at DrAmyRobbins.com. Can't wait until next week on Life, Death, and the Space Between.